Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, Managing Director and Founder of FW. I began life as a journalist, held senior roles in newspapers, edited Australia's largest magazine, and in 2018, I launched my own business. FW is dedicated to helping women navigate their working lives. But I've made my share of mistakes, especially as a leader. In this series, I go in search of answers to often complex leadership challenges. I explore the latest thinking on how to be a great leader and return to the tried and true methods to better understand what works and in what situations. How many of the listeners to this podcast identify as part of the edgy tech world where the leaders wear slouchy clothes and expensive sneakers? It won't surprise regular listeners if I admit to being a long way from home when I'm in a room of startup entrepreneurs, tech experts and futurists, all talking about a Series C capital raise. So today, I'm out of my comfort zone, talking about leadership with self-confessed serial entrepreneur Kate O'Keefe. In this episode, we discuss what leadership looks like in the fast-paced pressure cooker world of working in a startup, including what not to do. Kate O'Keefe, welcome to the FW Leadership Series. When I say serial entrepreneur, how many startups have you worked on? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, honestly, I've probably lost count. There are a couple that I worked on of my own. Um, so um, very early in my career, more or less as a teenager, I had a, a tech startup in uh, in Europe while I was living over there. Um, came home and founded my own fashion brand. I had a, a shoe business called Cinderella Bella with stores in Melbourne and Sydney. And it was actually while I was working there that I was actually headhunted um, to work for Cisco for a big tech brand. After my experience there where I created startups for Cisco, that was part of my job, was working with some of their biggest partners, like Apple and Ericsson and Walgreens. I would work with those big partners and with the objective to creating startups from scratch with Cisco's $2.2 billion VC fund. And then I left there to join a vehicle owned by Boston Consulting Group called Digital Ventures that created startups for big corporates. Um, I started a, a digital insurance company while I was there. And then left there in March of last year and created Heatseeker, my new venture uh, that's about supporting other startups um, with market validation. So probably too many to count, I'm afraid. <laughs> I, I have to ask, how do you leave a startup? Because the thing about startups is that they're just all-consuming. They are 24-7 obsession. And so you're in it. And then how do you just quit one and start a new one? Do you love that startup phase? And then once it's actually up and running, that doesn't interest you? It's a fantastic question because you're right. Creating a startup is a little bit like falling in love. It's insane. Your startup is the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning. It's the last thing you think about before you go to sleep at night. It is really all-consuming. But like all things, I think, I think it's really healthy in life to consider yourself a bit of a prototype the tries a few things, gets data from the marketplace or from yourself in terms of does it make your heart sing and then make other decisions. In my case, with my fashion business, uh, love that business, love the process of designing shoes, loved the amazing business partner that I had. And I realized that I was itching for scale. I was itching for something more than I could get from designing and selling shoes. So that's where my itch to go to Silicon Valley, which I really thought would give me a real apprenticeship. Uh, living there would give me an apprenticeship in what, what does best practice mean when it comes to the, the motion of starting a startup from scratch. But yeah, look, I think 
it takes a lot of self-awareness to take on that data in addition to all the information you get when you're creating a startup. You know, I'm listening to my customers, I'm listening to the market, I'm listening to my investors. It's all coming in. You also need to listen to yourself. Is this making my heart sing? Is this something that makes how hard this is easy? And creating a startup really will be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. So, you know, you want it to be something where your love and your passion for it sustains you through the bleak periods, you know, sustains you through missed family outings or gatherings because, you know, you, you've had to commit yourself or you've had to meet with an investor. So is this thing making your heart sing enough? I think the other thing in terms of self-awareness, at least for me, it's a real myth that the same entrepreneur that starts the startup must be the same person, the same CEO, the same woman that takes that business into the future. I am very much somebody that likes to bring something into creation for the first time. In the business I'm building right now, there's no comparison when people ask me, well, what is like the business that you're building right now? I, I can't point to something easily in the marketplace um, that does the same thing. That really excites me. And building something up to its first 20,000, 30,000, 100,000 users is, is what makes my heart sing. Would I be the best, absolute best person to take that business through to the phase beyond that? three, five, ten years beyond that? Am I the perfect operator for that next phase? I don't know. And I'm really comfortable that if I, you know, need to pass that business on to my co-founder at that stage, or I need to find, you know, someone else to take my baby forward. As long as my baby's living its best life in the world, I'm happy as it's, um, as its mum, if you like. Look at all of those feminine metaphors I'm coming I know you're up good. with. And I've got about 40 <laughs> questions in that, in that um, uh, listening to you with the answer. Um, I'm going to ask just one of them, and that is the knowing. The last interview we did about knowing when to quit a dream job. Um, the knowing that you're actually not good, at, and um, you, haven't, you haven't actually said this, so I'm just going to put words in your mouth, yeah. but knowing that you're not actually the best person and you're not really going to enjoy going from the 10,000 users to the 20,000 users. And that means a whole bunch of systems and processes and onboarding and cash flow and all the, the, the stuff that a decent-sized business requires. When did you learn or come to understand that actually the more creative phase, uh, and for many people the harder phase of actually getting it off the ground, was your sweet spot? Yeah, and, and I want to be clear. I mean, I think that sweet spot for me, to your point, is a bit further than the 20,000 users, is in the, the 100,000 and beyond yep. category, which is where those, some of those systems and processes and quality and ISO and all of the sorts of pieces come into play. I think what's interesting about my career so far is that I've operated in a lot of different environments. You know, I've, I've run innovation at a Melbourne water company. I've worked for a silicon, a massive $100 billion Silicon Valley company. Um, you know, I've worked for a big consulting company. That's given me lots of exposure to different environments. For me, it is the building of the machine. It's time spent with users. It's watching how the product I'm building is lighting people up. It's watching them get that dopamine hit gives me a 
a dopamine hit. So I think when you expose yourself to a lot of different environments, it gives you that understanding, which is interesting because that kind of growth mindset, that kind of, I need to see a lot of different things. I need to try a lot of different things and fail. It's a bit different from how when I started my career, how I imagined it would be, or even how I was told it ought to be. You know, you qualify in something at university and you follow a particular career path and you pivot within that career path and everybody lives happily ever after. I think for me, having such a pivot, pivot, pivot style career, like any good startup, you pivot, pivot, pivot till you find that real vein of value um, has given me the understanding of myself is that for me, it's about building an amazing team, up to probably 30 to 40 people that love the product and live for the product. And when we get into territory where there are people in that organisation that I don't know personally and I don't know their dog and I don't know um, their families, I, I, I lose contact with what I really live for when it comes to being a leader. So I want to concentrate on leadership and a couple of myths, potentially, like the one where the tech world is, you know, purpose-driven. It's a really purpose-driven environment. It's a really contemporary environment. And that should mean, you know, I think, a better leadership because everyone is, you know, much more conscious of every people's intersectional disadvantages or diversity. We're all here to make the world a better place. Can you talk to that environment? And have you worked in those environments? And what does leadership look like in those environments? Yeah, so I've read this quote once. I don't know who belongs to it, Helen, but someone said once that every great artist only ever really makes self-portraits. And that was certainly my experience living in Silicon Valley, that I was surrounded by uh, 30-something men in hoodies that like taking their dogs to work, who l- like building products for themselves as a user. They, so they built amazing products that were really well suited to that demographic and they weren't interested or driven to create products for a broader user base, for menopausal women or menstruating women or women with rich sex lives. They were really only building for themselves as a user. And I think that's part of what I noticed was creating that real echo chamber within the Valley when I was there. And I was there during that peak period. I was there from about 2013 to, to 2020. And so I saw, saw a lot of that behavior and was exposed to that as an entrepreneur What sort of products, space. just out of interest, what sort of products were you seeing? Um, all the tech products, all the apps. All of them. Yeah. All of the apps okay. coming out of, you know, uh, even if you think about, I'm a real consumer, if you like, of health apps. I have every health wearable known to man. I'm wearing one <laughs> right now. I've got my Aura ring. I've had a whoop strap. I've had every sleep sensor. I've done workouts wearing electromagnetic shocking of my muscles at the time. I'm what they call an early adopter. And what I was overwhelmed with when I started using these products was how they were all perfectly tailored to the jacked up male athlete who was often successful as a CEO in Silicon Valley at the time. So there was not even, even for something as universal as health, 
The approach that was being taken all over the valley at the time was very male-driven, very athlete-driven, very aimed, all the, the marketing and the tone of voice was aimed at the performance athlete and not at who I was at the time, which was a, a recent mother of twins, you know, trying to re-optimise you know, my health after I'd been through a pretty difficult double birth. So that was an example for me of something where the the focus of entrepreneurship was um, not tailored to me. So what sort of leadership did you see there? Like what was, what was on display? Or just a real echo chamber. If you think about the the entrepreneurs, the CEOs, the founders of that time, building products for themselves and the investors that were backing them in the Valley at the time were exactly the same demographic. And those investors were placing board members on the boards of these businesses that also fit that demographic. So you've got every layer of control, the leadership, the investors, the board, governance, all of which had different levels of responsibility to be thinking more broadly and a responsibility to shareholders. We all know that women in leadership, those who cater to women as users, women as, as, as spenders, as you know, the controlling household spending, there's so many great reasons why having a more diverse perspective would have made them more successful in the products that they were trying to build. But I really wasn't seeing them. So you're seeing rubbish leadership, generally <laughs> speaking. Um, if, I, if I was to, to summarise exactly what you're saying. I, I want to just understand the two kind of myths, right? So I asked you whether you saw any purpose-driven leadership and you said pretty much no, they're, yeah. all, they're all about themselves. So in a sense, that's more the sort of Adam Newman work we work, the Adam Newman, you know, the, and we've seen the Netflix series where it is as you describe. It's on the testosterone, it's on speed, it's their messiahs, they believe their own hype. And weirdly to me, uh, <laughs> and I'm sure to you, people throw money at them yeah. and give them more and more money. Yeah. So is there any world where that would be the case today? Are those people still, I mean, I'm feeling like, again, I know what the answer is. Are those people still <laughs> wandering around, you know, with other billionaires throwing them cash to go and burn it on an amazing new office and a great party? <laughs> <laughs> well, Helen, I mean, there are con men in every part of life and every part of the world. It's not unique to yep. entrepreneurship. Yeah. I do think what was interesting about that case at the time was the role of SoftBank in that process. So WeWork had grown to a certain stage before SoftBank chose to take an $11.5 billion stake in the company. Just, just eye-watering levels of money that were placed in there. Um, and their challenge to WeWork was to grow at the most incredible rate and at all costs. And if I think about what that means, that meant that not only was, you know, not only did we have this interesting character at the center of the startup itself, the charismatic bro CEO, which is not unusual within the Valley, but on top of that, he was fueled by $11.5 billion worth of SoftBank's money. And again, that was, you know, given by the, the main partner there, Son at SoftBank. So you've got very limited diversity. You've got this driving CEO and then this driving investor looking for these unreasonable levels of growth. Um, so when we see very little diversity of 
thinking of thought of talent, breadth of team, and when we've got such a, a narrow driver from an investment perspective, that's when, you know, we really see this amplification of bad behaviour and growth at all costs. What sort of leader are you? <laughs> what sort of leader am I? Um, that's a great question. All right, let me put it to you quite a bit differently. What sort of leader do you think people say you are? I think they would say, I start with the people that I surround myself with. I like to do impossible things, Helen. And to build a company, to build a startup, to raise several rounds of, of funding and venture capital, to connect with the hearts and minds of thousands and thousands of users through technology, I consider it an impossible thing to do. Really, really unusual. And in order to achieve impossible things, you need to be surrounded by impossible people, people who believe in the impossible, amazing people that you know, are driven, that are passionate, who practice enormous ownership. You know, for me, I want to be surrounded by people that when I'm having a hard day, they don't say, can I help you? They say, get down, I've got this. And for me, connecting with people like that, having people like that do me the privilege and the honour of wanting to share a moment of their career with me as we build something really, really special together is um, really important to how I see myself as a leader. So um, I think that's where it starts, finding incredibly talented, incredibly driven people. I'm someone who believes in having experts do expert things, you know, rather than having jacks of all trades around me, people looking to dabble in a lot of things, you know, people often talk at startups about, well, it was a startup, so I had to do everything. I think that's a disastrous approach, you know, because then you're, you're paying for the time and the effort for people to upskill and they're going through the pressure of a startup while they're trying to learn a new craft. So rather than taking that approach, I'd rather bring in people that are super deeply expert in what they work in. And I also find that creates an amazing culture for the people on the team. They feel like they're shoulder to shoulder with greats and that they are doing the best work of their life. So that's where it starts for me. And then the second, of course, is I live and breathe and die by the experience of the users. So spending a lot of time in interviews with users and customers, hearing what drives them in their lives, what is, what is the human friction that they're solving for. You know, as a designer, I like to think that I build Aspirins, not vitamins. You know, vitamins are nice things to have, but aspirins is, you've got a headache. You need that thing right now. You need, a, you, need, you need something that will really solve this immediate problem. And so making sure that you're really close to those users and you understand those um, human frictions that need solutions is, is really how I've sort of driven my career. It sounds to me that you have enormous curiosity and that's yeah. a clear leadership trait of yours. But it also strikes me that you do the charismatic leader thing. Like, people follow you, right? They believe in you. And you think I could pull off a we work, Helen? Is oh, that what you're saying? Oh, actually, if you were a bloke. <laughs> if you were male, yes, absolutely. Um, not many women have pulled that off, although there are a couple, aren't there? Yeah. There are a couple of very famous women who did pull off similar... And people love it when they crash and burn. Oh, if you're thinking about yeah. Elizabeth Holmes and oh, the like yes. of her, yes, yes. they and love it when a woman Elizabeth puts Holmes, a foot wrong. but who's the other one? The, um, the Russian woman. Oh, Anna Delvey. Anna Delvey. Yeah. Mean, amazing. Yes. Like just, is there a more compelling <laughs> They really should have unleashed her on Silicon Valley. She anyway, would've... you're not Anna Delvey. <laughs> uh, but I do, I do 
get the sense that that charismatic leader is really important in what you do. You have to be someone that people want to follow. Would you describe yourself that way? Um, sure. I mean, if by charisma we're talking about my capacity to help my team believe in their ability to take a hill, to do the impossible, yeah, I, I, I think that's something that you could say that I am. Let's talk about pitching because... Um, Can we do the charisma question again? I should have just owned it a bit. All right, you want to do that again? Yeah. So Kate's going to do that again because... <laughs> As part of great role modelling. Kate, are you a really charismatic leader? <laughs> I am charismatic, Helen. Thank you so much for asking. I giggle, but I, I do believe it's important to, as part of my role, to be able to attract great talent and attract great investors on the journey. But people's charisma comes from different places. For me, being charismatic is all about being my authentic self within the work that I do. I feel that that builds trust. So I'm prepared to say, I didn't really handle that charisma question very well. Can we do that again? And that, I can't even pronounce charisma and anymore. That, and that was, you know, <laughs> and that was a test because so many women come in with your experience and your confidence and then yeah. will sidestep yeah. a question like that. So well done. Good Thank answer. You. Thank you. But it's clearly obvious that you do have that. Can we talk about pitching now? Yeah. Um, Which is a good segue, actually, because going in and selling yourself to a bunch of investors, and mostly they will be men, is a skill that many women really struggle with. Tell me how you approach a pitch. Where I like to start a pitch is by connecting with the human problem I'm solving. So I think it can be a real mistake with a pitch to jump straight into, I'm amazing, my product's amazing. When you barely need to talk about the fact that you're amazing and your product's amazing if people really connect with the problem that you're trying to solve. So that's the content. What about the presence? What about the tone? What about how you psych yourself up? Yeah. Okay. Tell me about it. Okay. Well, First of all, I like to make sure I'm physically incredibly comfortable. Chatting to you right now, Helen, I've taken my shoes off. It's a bit warm in here. That's made me more comfortable. It's freezing in here, by the way. <laughs> I can't believe, I'm I can't sweaty. believe you're hot. <laughs> Keep going. So making sure I'm physically super comfortable. The second thing is to slow down. Slow down. It makes people think you're more confident than, than you are. It makes you easier to understand. In my experience, speaking a good 25% slower than what you think is normal is great for the average person, unlike yourself, that doesn't do a tremendous amount of public speaking. The other thing I like to do is make sure I'm talking to a human being, that I'm looking a person in the eyes. And I've actually done this experiment where I have listened to myself when I couldn't see my audience. And when you can't see a person... You waffle, you get lost, you lose your concentration and your voice is cold. And for me, when I land a point, so if I'm in a crowded room, if I look over their heads, I'm not great. But if I find somebody and I deliver my message to them and then I deliver my message to them, I sound warmer, I sound more human and I sound more like myself. And I think that this part of why that's so important for how I present, again, is that I'm focusing on a human problem. And so connecting with those humans when I'm telling that story is so important for people to understand where I'm coming from. You're in a cutting-edge organisation. How do you manage as a leader where the rules are not as 
defined. In the organisations I've worked for, big media companies, increasingly there are fairly strong guidelines around behaviour and that's shifted dramatically over time. Um, but you're in a smaller organisation where behaviour is, there's not a bunch of policies or a big HR department who's policing this stuff. How as a leader do you create an environment where, you know, behaviour is respectful and culture is optimal? In my experience, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's really about the culture that you have as a team. And that really starts from me, from a role modelling perspective. So I think by modelling the kind of behaviour that you want to see for your, your team, the kind of jokes that you do and don't make, making sure that you have a level a level of standards that you like to have um, within the environment. It's been interesting for me to observe as we do more and more things on Zoom and people are taking more and more meetings in their pyjama pants with their shoes off like mine are right now. You know, standards are a little bit different. And I think reminding people that this is a professional environment and that everybody needs to be comfortable I think the other thing for me is just being super vulnerable and when I make mistakes, saying that I'm sorry and owning it and if I've made um, someone feel uncomfortable, not just apologising for them but even apologising to everybody who might have seen it because I want to make sure people know that, you know, that's not how I want everybody to behave. So, yeah, I think it can be too easy for leaders to give themselves a pass because they're the boss and they're unlikely to be queried when if you've done something that you'd be horrified that other folks might have done, calling yourself on that I think can be incredibly important. Have you had to manage, you know, a closure of a startup where it wasn't what you expected to happen, it wasn't what you wanted to happen and it was, you know, devastating to have to close a business? I mean, I was really sad when my shoe business, my shoe label ended and I was really sad for what that meant for my relationship with my business partner at the time. So, yeah, I mean, businesses are always incredibly personal. People forget that because it's your business. They forget that a business is, is just a collection of thoughts and dreams and hopes um, that some really special, talented, passionate people had for it at a time. So, yeah, any time that you're letting something like that go and, and moving on and as an entrepreneur, allowing yourself some time to mourn, I think it's lovely now in a way that wasn't true when I was in my 20s or even early 30s. The culture has changed now to be much more accepting of failure. People love my failure stories these days. You know, they love it on a CV when I said, you know, these big projects I was working on are shut and people see that as being the scars that you have. And I, I think when you're having conversations and contextualizing for people what your stories are, chatting about, you know, your biggest failures and, and how you navigated them and how you moved on and shows the kind of tenacity and grit that people are looking for now in great leadership. Yeah, and look, I think you make a good point. Owning failure, generally speaking, in a leadership role is does give you a lot more credibility yeah. and, dare I say, authenticity with yeah. the people that you're leading. Is there anything you would have done differently in retrospect when you closed down the shoe business? That is useful to an audience that's listening going, I've got to have, I've got to have these difficult conversations. I've got to make these <laughs> difficult decisions. Um, I would have spent more time one-on-one -on -one in person with my partner, my business partner at the time. I would love to have spent more time with her. We should have had a drink to say goodbye to our baby girl as it, as it floated off into the ether. Um, I should have acknowledged the role that she played. Um, in that difficult time and the difficult feelings that she must have also had at the time. So, yeah, I think we let, I let things kind of peter out in a way that I wished I hadn't. So, yeah, if I'd had my time again, um, we would have said goodbye to her more properly. Giving, given her a bit of a funeral and a good send-off would have been appropriate. 
uh, for anyone who's listening to this and is in a big consulting firm or is really drawn to the idea of taking that leap, what things should they consider? Yeah, and it's a great question because I, I did go into a big corporate after my startup. And I did move into a big consulting firm, you know, after I had done other startups. So I am someone who has come in and out of those environments over time. The lovely thing about being in an enterprise or the lovely thing about being in a consulting firm, as an example, is the potential for scale, is the potential for you to do things quickly and at scale. I mean, when I was at Cisco, the products I was making or working on had the potential to touch hundreds of thousands or millions of people. You know, we were making the internet for entire nation states and being part of that journey for me was totally addictive that I could do something, anything that would help people on that scale. So that was exciting for me and that was going to be quite difficult for me. As ambitious as I was as a young entrepreneur, difficult for me to get that kind of scale. So I think scale is a great thing. And I think the other thing is I learned an enormous amount, you know, in my consulting career. Um, Even though I was quite senior, I was a a partner uh, leading design, I learned more in those three years working um, for BCG in that environment than I had in, you know, the prior three years. It was just a very rich, demanding, talented, you know, surrounded by the smartest person in the room kind of environment. So I wouldn't want to discount, you know, the value that you can get. I'm a big believer in a varied career. I'm a big believer in being a renaissance man, if you like. But of course, the possibility that you have leading your own thing um, and building a startup is obviously something that I think is is incredibly exciting, very romantic. I believe there's lots of places though you can get the muscles that it takes. I'm having the best entrepreneurial experience I've ever had in my life. And it's because of the capabilities that I built within a consulting context, within an enterprise context in big tech, and also with the other entrepreneurial experiences I've had. All of them have been important for me to get where I'm going now. Kate O'Keefe, thank you so much. I am just going to have to ask you back in about five years' time <laughs> to find out where this um, this incredible career of yours lands. But thank you for sharing some of your insights today. Thank you, Helen. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.